Chapter Ten of Tales of a Traveler by Washington Irving. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Greg Giordano. Chapter Ten Club of Queer Fellows. I think it was but the very next evening that in coming out of Covent Garden Theatre with my eccentric friend Buckthorne, he proposed to give me another peep at life and character. Finding me willing for any research of the kind, he took me through a variety of the narrow courts and lanes about Covent Garden, until we stopped before a tavern from which we heard the bursts of merriment of a jovial party. There would be a loud peal of laughter, then an interval, then another peal, as if a prime wag were telling a story. After a little while, there was a song, and at the close of each stanza, a hearty roar and a vehement thumping on the table. "'This is the place,' whispered Buckthorne. "'It is the Club of Queer Fellows, a great resort of the small wits, third-rate actors, and newspaper critics of the theatres. Anyone can go in, paying a shilling.' at the bar for the use of the club we entered therefore without ceremony and took our seats at a lone table in a dusky corner of the room the club was assembled round a table on which stood beverages of various kinds according to the taste of the individual the members were a set of queer fellows indeed but what was my surprise on recognizing in the prime wit of the meeting the poor devil author whom i had remarked at the bookseller's dinner for his promising face and his complete taciturnity matters however were entirely changed with him there he was a mere cipher here he was lord of the ascendant the choice spirit the dominant genius he sat at the head of the table with his hat on and an eye beaming even more luminously than his nose he had a quiz and a fillip for every one and a good thing on every occasion. Nothing could be said or done without eliciting a spark from him, and I solemnly declare I have heard much worse wit even from noblemen. His jokes, it must be confessed, were rather wet, but they suited the circle in which he presided. The company were in that maudlin mood when a little wit goes a great way. Every time he opened his lips there was sure to be a roar, and sometimes before he had time to speak. We were fortunate enough to enter in time for a glee composed by him expressly for the club, in which he sang with two boon companions, who would have been worthy subjects for Hogarth's pencil. As they were provided with a written copy, I was enabled to procure the reading of it. Merrily, merrily, push round the glass, and merrily troll the glee, for he who won't drink till he wink is an ass, so, neighbor, I drink to thee. Merrily, merrily, puddle thy nose, Until it right rosy shall be. For a jolly red nose, I speak under the rose, Is a sign of good company. We waited until the party broke up, And no one but the wit remained. He sat at the table with his legs stretched under it, And wide apart, his hands in his breeches pockets, His head drooped upon his breast, and gazing with lacklustre countenance on an empty tankard. His gaiety was gone, his fire completely quenched. 
my companion approached and startled him from his fit of brown study introducing himself on the strength of their having dined together at the booksellers uh, by the way said he it seems to me i have seen you before your face is surely the face of an old acquaintance though for the life of me i cannot tell where i have known you very likely said he with a smile many of my old friends have forgotten me though to tell the truth my memory in this instance is as bad as your own if however it will assist your recollection in any way my name is thomas dribble at your service what tom dribble who was at old birchall's school in warwickshire the same said the other coolly why then we are old schoolmates though it's no wonder you don't recollect me i was your junior by several years don't you recollect little jack buckthorn here then ensued a scene of schoolfellow recognition and a world of talk about old school times and school pranks mr dribble ended by observing with a heavy sigh ah the times were sadly changed since those days faith mr dribble said i you seem quite a different man here from what you were at dinner i had no idea that you had so much stuff in you there you were all silence but here you absolutely keep the table in a roar ah my dear sir replied he with a shake of the head and a shrug of the shoulder i'm a mere glow-worm i never shine by daylight besides it's a hard thing for a poor devil of an author to shine at the table of a rich bookseller who do you think would laugh at anything i could say when i had some of the current wits of the day about me <laughs> but here though a poor devil i am among still poorer devils than myself men who look up to me as a man of letters and a bel esprit and all my jokes pass as sterling gold from the mint you surely do yourself injustice sir said i i have certainly heard more good things from you this evening than from any of those beaux esprits by whom you appear to have been so daunted ah sir but they have luck on their side they are in the fashion there's nothing like being in fashion a man that has once got his character up for a wit is always sure of a laugh say what he may he may utter as much nonsense as he pleases and all will pass current no one stops to question the coin of a rich man but a poor devil cannot pass off either a joke or a guinea without its being examined on both sides wit and coin are always doubted with a threadbare coat for my part continued he giving his hat a twitch a little more on one side for my part i hate your fine dinners there's nothing sir like the freedom of a chop-house i'd rather any time have my steak and tankard among my own set than drink claret and eat venison with your cursed civil elegant company who never laugh at a good joke from a poor devil for fear of its being vulgar a good joke grows in a wet soil it flourishes in low places but withers on your d high dry grounds i once kept high company sir until i nearly ruined myself i grew so dull and vapid and genteel nothing saved me but being arrested by my landlady and thrown into prison where a course of catch-clubs eightpenny ale and poor devil company manured my mind and brought it back to itself again 
as it was now growing late we parted for the evening though i felt anxious to know more of this practical philosopher i was glad therefore when buckthorne proposed to have another meeting to talk over old school times and inquired his schoolmate's address the latter seemed at first a little shy of naming his lodgings but suddenly assuming an air of hardihood green arbor court sir exclaimed he number blank in green arbor court you must know the place classic ground sir classic ground it was there goldsmith wrote his vicar of wakefield i always like to live in literary haunts i was amused with this whimsical apology for shabby quarters on our way homewards buckthorne assured me that this dribble had been the prime wit and great wag of the school in their boyish days and one of those unlucky urchins denominated bright geniuses as he perceived me curious respecting his old schoolmate he promised to take me with him in his proposed visit to green arbor court a few mornings afterwards he called upon me and we set forth on our expedition he led me through a variety of singular alleys and courts and blind passages for he appeared to be profoundly versed in all the intricate geography of the metropolis at length we came upon fleet street and traversing it turned up a narrow street to the bottom of a long steep flight of stone steps named breakneck stairs these he told me led up to green arbor court and that down them poor goldsmith might many a time have risked his neck when we entered the court i could not but smile to think in what out-of-the-way corners genius produces her bantlings and the muses those capricious dames who forsooth so often refuse to visit palaces and deny a single smile to votaries in splendid studies and gilded drawing-rooms what holes and burrows will they frequent to lavish their favors on some ragged disciple this green arbor court i found to be a small square of tall and miserable houses the very intestines of which seemed turned inside out to judge from the old garments and frippery that fluttered from every window it appeared to be a region of washerwomen and lines were stretched about the little square in which clothes were dangling to dry just as we entered the square a scuffle took place between two viragos about a disputed right to a wash-tub and immediately the whole community was in a hubbub heads and mop-caps popped out of every window and such a clamour of tongues ensued that i was fain to stop my ears every amazon took part with one or other of the disputants and brandished her arms dripping with soap-suds and fired away from her window as from the embrasure of a fortress while the swarms of children nestled and cradled in every procreant chamber of this hive waking with a noise set up their shrill pipes to swell the general concert poor goldsmith what a time must he have had of it with his quiet disposition and nervous habits penned up in this den of noise and vulgarity how strange that while every sight and sound was sufficient to embitter the heart and fill it with misanthropy his pen should be dropping the honey of hybla yet it is more than probable that he drew many of his inimitable pictures of low life from the scenes which surrounded him in this abode the circumstance of mrs tibbs being obliged to wash her husband's two shirts in a neighbor's house who refused to lend her wash-tub may have been no sportive fancy 
at a fact passing under his own eye. His landlady may have sat for the picture, and Beau Tibbs' scanty wardrobe had been a facsimile of his own. It was with some difficulty that we found our way to Dribble's lodgings. They were up two pair of stairs, in a room that looked upon the court, and when we entered he was seated on the edge of his bed, writing at a broken table. He received us, however, with a free, open, poor-devil air that was irresistible. It is true he did at first appear slightly confused, buttoned up his waistcoat a little higher, and tucked in a stray frill of linen. But he recollected himself in an instant, gave a half-swagger, half-leer, as he stepped forth to receive us, drew a three-legged stool from Mr. Buckthorn, pointed me to a lumbering old damask chair that looked like a dethroned monarch in exile, and bade us welcome to his garret. We soon got engaged conversation. Buckthorn and he had much to say about early school scenes, and as nothing opened the man's heart more than recollections of the kind, we soon drew from him a brief outline of his literary career. End of chapter 10 Recording by Greg Giordano Newport Ritchie, Florida